First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We started our journey through this uh, letter to the Philippians about six weeks ago, and uh, by God's providence, we come today on Palm Sunday uh, to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which is one of the most beautiful passages about Jesus in the Bible. Uh, This passage has been called uh, the hymn to Christ, and very likely it was sung as a hymn by the early church. It was either written by Paul himself or by someone else and used by Paul in this letter. Uh, But this hymn to Christ is a perfect passage for us to study and to think about today on this Sunday uh, before Good Friday. And on this day when we will come to the Lord's table together in just a few minutes. Because this passage is all about the incredible, matchless humility that Christ showed when he left heaven, when he came to earth and died for us on the cross. And you certainly get the feeling as you read uh, the words of this passage that uh, we are walking together this morning on holy ground. Let's read these words together. Philippians 2. Beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would be glorified in us this morning. That, Lord, you would show us and teach us how we can have the mind of Christ. That we might put others before ourselves. That we might lay our lives down. Father, we praise you today for your son Jesus, that he came, that he died, that he rose again, and that he is even right now exalted and at your right hand. Lord, would you fix our gaze upon your son Jesus. Would you speak to our hearts through your word? In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. It was Thursday night, only four days after Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey with crowds of people waving palm branches and crying out in praise. But on this night, on this Thursday night, the crowds were all gone. And it was just Jesus and his 12 closest friends on earth, his disciples. They were gathered together in an upper room about to take the first Lord's Supper meal, the meal that we will take in just a few minutes. The Bible says that that night in that upper room, Jesus got up and that he put a towel around his waist, that he took a bowl of water 
And then he proceeded to go from person to person all around the room, kneeling beside each one and washing their feet with his own hands. It was a job that only the lowest servant in the house would have done. And so even though it needed to be done, none of the disciples wanted to do it. None of them wanted to be seen as the lowest servant in the group. Except, of course, for Jesus. Can you see him there that night? The Lord of glory. The creator of heaven and earth. The word of the Father. The beautiful, holy one washing ugly, stinky feet. It's one of the stories in the Gospels. It's one moment in Jesus' life, but it illustrates something. It illustrates the whole reason why he came. That he came to serve, that he came to give his very life away, which in fact the next day he would proceed to do on the cross. Jesus washing feet, Jesus dying and suffering on the cross. This is what Paul had in mind when he said in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now this mind of Christ that Paul is bringing up in verse 5, he's not bringing up for no reason. It's in the context, of course, of this letter that he's writing to these Christians in the city of Philippi. And it relates to the passage that we studied last week at the end of chapter 1 and the first few verses of chapter 2. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 27, Paul had written to them and written to us, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's calling us to live our lives in a way that is worth, in a way that matches the all-surpassing worth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who died for us. And he goes on in the next few verses to explain that if we're going to do that, if we're going to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we need to be unified in order to do that. And at the end of chapter 1, he says we need to be unified first off against all external attacks that might come against the church. But then in chapter 2, he writes that we also need to stay together and be unified against any internal attacks that could rise out of the church because of our sinful nature, our desire to live selfishly and to look out, even in the church, for our own interests. And so Paul said that the secret to being able to stay unified in the church is all summed up in one word, the word humility. In verse 3 and 4, he said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. This is how God wants us to live in his church. But those words, as we know, are a lot easier to read than they are to live out. And what I love here is that Paul doesn't just say to us, you know, y'all be humble. He doesn't just give that command. He tells us how to do it, and he tells us how to do it, beginning in verse 5, by giving us the greatest example of humility who ever lived, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's why he writes in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also 
in Christ Jesus. He's saying to us, if you really want to live humbly, if you really want to put the interest of others ahead of yourself, if you really want to do that, then you have to have the mind of Christ. You have to think the way that Jesus thought. And then in verses 6 through 11, Paul unpacks for us in the words of this great hymn how Jesus thought. He shares with us what Jesus was thinking that enabled him to do what he did, that that enabled him to come and die for us. And in a very succinct way, in verses 6 through 11, we find the entire gospel story. We find the story of of who Jesus is. We find the story of how Jesus came and what he did for us. And we even find the story of what's going to happen one day after this because of what Jesus did on the cross. All of that is told to us very succinctly in these five or six verses. If you want to remember a very simple outline for this passage, all you have to remember is the letter V. The letter V. Because when you draw the letter V, you draw two lines in different directions. You draw one line coming down, and you draw one line coming up. And basically at its simplest level, that is the outline of this passage. Because it talks about how Christ humbled himself, how Christ came down. But it also speaks about how Christ was exalted in verses 9 through 11. How Christ went up. And so again, as we remember that letter V, we remember the main points of this passage, that Christ came down and that Christ went up, and because he did, we can have hope and we can have life. And so as we walk through this passage, let's remember the two directions of the gospel story. First of all, let's think together about how Christ came down. Let's think together about the humility of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 6. Paul writes, Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. When Paul starts to tell the story of Jesus, he starts way, way back. He starts before the world began in verse 6. He's speaking about Jesus before he was named Jesus. He's speaking about Jesus before he was born in Bethlehem. Because what the Bible teaches is that even before Bethlehem, that Jesus has always existed as the eternal Son of God. Theologians call this doctrine the pre-existence of Jesus. That there was never a time when he was not. That he is eternal, just as the Father and the Spirit Are eternal. And this truth shows up repeatedly in the Word of God, especially in the Gospel of John. The very first verses of John's Gospel teach this truth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then in John chapter 8, Jesus says this about himself. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, chronologically, Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Jesus, and yet Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And he takes the covenant name of God, the name Yahweh, I am. And so he's claiming to be eternal, and he's claiming to be God. 
And then in his prayer, the night before he died on the cross, in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed this, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So here is Jesus talking about a time when he was with God before the world was even created. And this truth is so important that we understand that the story of Jesus did not start in Bethlehem, that the Son of God is eternal, that he has no beginning. And so back in Philippians 2, Paul alludes to this truth when he writes about Jesus existing in the form of God. And the words that he uses in the Greek leave no doubt of what he is saying. He is declaring the truth that Jesus is God in every way and always has been. And it's with that foundation in mind that Paul begins to share with us how far Jesus came down when he came down. How far he descended from the glory of heaven when he came down to us. And that's why he goes on in verse 6 to say, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now the word that's translated robbery there can be translated that way because it refers to something that is snatched, to something that is grasped, or to something that is held onto. And yet really the idea that that Paul is conveying here is, is better seen in English in the way the New American Standard translates this verse. It says, Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on In other words, he was willing to step out of heaven and come to us. He was willing to do what verses 3 and 4 talk about. He was willing to put our interests ahead of his own. He was willing to give instead of grasp. What about you? What about me? With all of the blessings and privileges that we have been given, do we grasp them or do we give them? Are we willing, like our Lord, to let go in order to be a blessing to those around us? And notice how much this text emphasizes that it was Jesus' decision to let go. It was Jesus' decision to come down. It says in verse uh, 7, that he made himself of no reputation. In verse 8, it says that he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Jesus chose to put others before himself, to be selfless to the infinite degree. And that is why he is the ultimate example to us of selfless living that the Lord wants to see in our church. Verse 7, it says that he made himself of no reputation. Literally, the Greek word behind that phrase means that Jesus emptied himself, that he emptied himself out for us. Now, we don't have time uh, this morning to dive into all of the intricacies of the debates that arise from this passage, but I do need to mention there's been a lot of arguing among Bible scholars about this particular word that Jesus emptied himself. 
And there are some, in fact, a whole school of theology that would argue from this phrase that when Jesus became a man, that he actually emptied himself of deity, that he emptied himself of some of the attributes of being God, and yet nothing could be farther from the truth. When Jesus became a man, he did not cease to be God. He did not become less God when he became a man. Rather, he added humanity to his deity. It's so important that we understand that truth as well. Because church, listen, if Jesus wasn't fully God, then he could not redeem us then his death on the cross would not have been sufficient to pay for our sins. He was fully God. But also it's important to remember that Jesus was fully man. Because if he wasn't fully man, church, then he could not represent us. He couldn't stand in our place when he died. His death could not be credited to our account. This doctrine that Jesus is fully God and fully man is essential to all that we believe. And yet it has always been under attack in the history of the church. Particularly in the first few centuries of the church. And that's why it's so important that we study church history. Because in the first centuries of the church, there were some, like Arius, the Arians, who attacked Jesus' deity. They said that Jesus wasn't fully God, that he was just a created being. On the other hand, there were those like the Docetists who denied the real humanity of Christ, who taught that he wasn't a real man, that he just appeared to be a real man, that he was really something like a ghost, But as the early church fathers wrestled with these attacks and they wrestled with what the Word of God teaches about Christ, they argued rightly at the Council of Nicaea in 325 and at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 about what the Bible teaches about Jesus, that he is fully God, that he is fully man, and because he is, he was able to save us. What Jesus gave up when he became a man was not his deity. But he gave up his glory and the privileges that went along with deity. Brian Chapel shares a story of uh, a little village in Africa where there was the chief of that village. And in order to be the chief of this African village, you needed to be the strongest man in the town. And the strongest man in the town, this African chief, would have been marked off with an elaborate headdress that he would have worn and elaborate colorful robes that he would have worn as he walked around that identified him as the chief. Well, one day there was a man in that village who fell in, in a deep cistern in a water hole all the way down to the bottom and broke his leg and was unable to climb back up. It was just laying helplessly there at the bottom, bottom of that cistern. And in order to rescue that man, someone would have needed to to use the little slits in the wall to to climb all the way down to the bottom, to take this man with his broken leg, to put him over their shoulders, and to climb back up again on the slits of that wall all the way up to the top. And no one in that village was strong enough to be able to do that, and so finally they called for the chief. And the chief came, and he came to that watering hole, and he looked down at the bottom, and he saw that man lying helplessly there at the bottom. And he knew that only he could save him. And so he took off the headdress that he was wearing and set it to the side. 
And he took off the robes that he was wearing and he set them to the side and he climbed all the way down to the bottom and he put that man on his shoulders and he climbed him all the way back up to the top. This is a picture of what our Savior Jesus has done for us. He's the only one who is able to save us. He came to the edge and he looked down and he saw us lying helplessly there at the bottom and he took off his headdress and he set it to the side. And he took off his colorful robes and he set them to the side and he was willing to climb down to the bottom and put us on his shoulders and climb us back up to the top. In the same way that that chief, even though he wasn't wearing his clothing, was still the chief as he climbed down that watering hole. Jesus did not stop being the eternal son of God when he set his glory to the side and came down in order to save us. This is the miracle that the Bible talks about in verse 7, the miracle of the incarnation. God in the flesh, born as one of us. And Paul uses several phrases in verse 7 to describe this. He says that he took the form of a bondservant, that he came not to be served but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul writes that he came in the likeness of men. He didn't appear to be a man. He didn't seem to be a man. He was a man, just as much a man as he was God. And we see that in the gospel accounts, that he had all the weaknesses that come along with being a man, that he got thirsty, he got tired, he got hungry, he experienced sorrow and pain and loss and finally even death. And it's to that death that Paul turns in verse 8. He says, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. We've been talking about the downward descent of that letter V, how how Jesus humbled himself and came down. And when we come to verse 8, we're coming to the very bottom of that V. We're coming to the very lowest point in the descent and the humiliation of Jesus. When he died on the cross, when he drank the cup, that the Father gave him to drink. And when you read the four gospel accounts, you understand that Jesus' death was not an afterthought, that the shadow of the cross lay over his entire life, that this is why Jesus came. His life was not taken from him, but he obediently walked to the cross and voluntarily laid down his life for us because it's precisely what he came to do. And he humbled himself so much that not only was he willing to die, but he was willing to experience a particular kind of death. Verse 8 puts it so succinctly, even the death of the cross. No form of execution has ever been devised that was more painful, more humiliating, more degrading than the cross, and yet it was on the cross that the Prince of Glory died. And it was on the cross that Jesus bore the spiritual weight of the sins of the world. We call this coming Friday Good Friday. And we should because it is unspeakably good for us that Jesus paid for our sin. But church, let's never confuse God's goodness with cheapness or with lightness. Because Jesus bore a spiritual weight that we cannot imagine. And he paid a debt that we could never have paid. And he hung there on the cross for six hours that Friday before yielding up his spirit to the Father. 
And we come to the absolute lowest point when they came and took his body, his lifeless body that had been nailed to the tree, and they wrapped it up in cloth and they laid him in a cold, dark tomb where he would remain for the next three days. But praise God, that is not the end of Jesus' story. Because Jesus came down, all the way down to death on the cross, all the way down to burial in the tomb. But church, the truth that we will celebrate next Sunday on Easter Sunday morning, the truth that has changed our lives is not only did Christ come down, but Christ also went up. Christ went up. Let's think together about the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The the turning point in this passage is in verse 9, the very first phrase. That's when we turn the corner at the bottom of that V and we start to move our way up. When it says, therefore, God also has highly exalted him. And with that phrase, the entire mood of this passage begins to change. No longer are we following Jesus' journey down, down, down. But now we are following him with our hearts and with our minds as he goes up, up, up. As the Father has exalted him to the supreme place in the universe. And what is implied in that phrase that he exalted him is everything between Jesus' burial and the day when Jesus will rule and reign over a new heaven and a new earth. Of course, that includes what we'll celebrate next Sunday, the resurrection. That's the first step in the exaltation of Jesus because before the Father could exalt him, he had to first raise him. Acts 2.32, Peter states this truth so simply. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. But when Philippians speaks about God the Father exalting Jesus. It also includes what happened 40 days after that when Jesus ascended into heaven. Acts 1 and verse 9 tells that story. Now when he, Jesus, had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So God exalted Jesus by raising him from the dead, by his ascension into heaven, but also by his being seated at the right hand of the Father, by his being given authority and rule and reign over all things. This is how Paul explains it in the letter to the Ephesians. He says, What is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. And he put all things under his feet. So this theme of the exaltation of Jesus Christ, it runs all the way throughout the New Testament. But what we find out here in Philippians chapter 2 is that the Father's exalting of Jesus was the result of everything Jesus did up until that point. Jesus' humbling of himself to become a man. His obedience and humbling of himself to die for us on the cross. And in response to that, God the Father does what he does. That's why it says in verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him. He exalted him for this reason. Now certainly, after his ascension, Jesus was restored to everything that he had prior to the incarnation, all of the glory that he had before. And yet there's a sense 
that we understand from this passage that in some way, because of Jesus' redemptive work on the cross, the Father has granted to the Son even more. Even more responsibilities and rights. It says throughout the New Testament that now, because of what he has done, the Father has put all things under his feet. We read in verse 9 that the Father also has given him a name which is above every name. Bible scholars debate about whether or what that name is. Some say that that name is Jesus But I would contend that that name had already been given to him at his birth in Bethlehem. This speaks of a new name that is being given to him. And I agree with the majority of commentators that find that name in verse 11, that title, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is sovereign over all in the universe. Now, certainly Jesus was already, in a sense, Lord before because he's the second person of the Godhead. Certainly he was already, in a sense, Lord at his birth in Bethlehem. And yet, in a different sense, in a new sense, now that he is the exalted God-man, he has been made Lord. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father with nail prints in his hands. The name that God has given to him. You know, in Jesus' life and ministry, many people mocked his name. Even while he hung on the cross, people walked by and mocked him and yelled insults at him and said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. They said, if you really are the Son of God, then come down from the cross. And of course, the mocking and insults have not stopped there. People have been mocking the name of Jesus for 2,000 years and running saying that he's just a good teacher, that he's merely a religious figure, that he wasn't really who he said he was. But this passage reveals what is already known in the unseen world. Jesus already has this name, Lord. He is already, even now, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And one day, what this passage says is that that truth will be obvious to everyone. Verse 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth and those under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, nobody in heaven, nobody on earth, and nobody under the earth will be able to escape the reality that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is actually the Son of the living God, the Lord of heaven and earth. And one day, at the mere mention of his name, every knee will bow. Now, church, that doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. This passage isn't teaching universalism. Not everyone will be saved, but everyone will bow. One day, everyone will acknowledge the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Everyone who in this life opposed him and hated him and ignored him and even mocked him, even Satan and all of his demons will acknowledge the truth. They will bow the knee and confess with their lips, Jesus Christ is Lord. And verse 11 says that all of this will be for what? It will be to the glory of God the Father. In fact, one day, this is what 1 Corinthians 15 says is going to happen. Now when all things are made subject to him, that is Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, the Father who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. 
You know, I've spent many years of my life studying the doctrine of the Trinity, and there are still so many things that I don't understand about it. There is so much mystery here. But one thing we know for sure, there is no jealousy among the members of the Godhead. And even in Christ's exaltation, he ultimately wants to submit everything back to the Father so that the Father can be all in all. That's the heart of the Son towards his Father. And of the heart of the Father towards his Son is that for all eternity, he will continue to say those words that he said at Jesus' baptism. This is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We said that based on verses 10 and 11, one day every knee will bow. And what that means for us is this. Practically speaking, here's what that means for us. We have a choice. We can bow now or we can bow later. We can bow now or we can bow later. We can bow right now and we can acknowledge that Jesus is our Lord and we can receive him as our Savior and we can be saved or we can wait and begrudgingly acknowledge that he is Lord later. But if we do that, the Bible is perfectly clear that we will be eternally lost. And so let's not wait to bow later. Let's bow before Jesus as Lord right now while there is time left to do so. And you know what's required to be able to bow the knee to Jesus? You know what the prerequisite is in order to be able to do that? It comes back to the same word that we started out talking about today, the word humility. Humility. We said that the letter V is a good way to think about this passage and the life that Jesus lived. That he came down and now he has gone up. That he humbled himself and now he has been exalted. But you know, in a way, the letter V also reflects a principle that is true for every single one of us. A principle that Jesus talked about in Matthew 23 when he said this, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. We can choose to live our lives like the rest of the world in pride. We can choose to try to work our way up, 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 to turn that V upside down and try to work our way up and not acknowledge our need for a Savior. But if we do that, if we spend our lives trying to exalt ourselves, then one day this passage says God is going to humble us. But if we live like that letter V if we follow the model that Jesus has given us, if we will humble ourselves now, if we will bow our knees now before the cross of Jesus and confess our weakness and confess our brokenness and confess our need for a Savior, if we will do that, then God says in due time, I will raise you up. And this principle is also true for every one of us in this room who already has bowed the knee to Jesus who already has trusted Jesus as your Savior, the Lord wants us to live the way Jesus lived. The Lord doesn't want us to try to go up, up, up and earn a name for ourselves. The Lord wants us to go down, down, down. The Lord wants us to take a towel and to get down on our knees and to serve and to give our lives away for others, to do as verse 4 says, to put the interest of others ahead of ourselves. And if we do that, if we will humble ourselves, what does that verse say? And he will exalt us. And he will say to us on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. 
and I will put you in charge over many things. Church, let's remember where we started. The only way to unity in the church is humility. And the only way to humility is to allow ourselves to be transformed by Jesus and to follow the pattern of Jesus so that we think like he thought. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 